Hello, and welcome to another engaging episode of Cyber Speaks Live, the InfoSec podcast recorded in front of a live online audience, giving you, the community, a voice that can be heard around the world. And now it's time for your host, Duncan McAllen. Good afternoon, good morning, or good evening, wherever you are listening from. My name is Duncan Macklin. I am InfoSecWar on Twitter, and this is yet another engaging episode of CyberSpeaks Live, and we have a fantastic guest for you today that I cannot wait to get to. This one has been on my radar since I started this show. It's taken us several weeks to be able to get him here in live to be able to have a open conversation with you folks that are lucky enough to be joining us live for these recordings and that is what this podcast series is all about beyond the weekly topics that we decide to pick and choose and bring on industry leading guest hosts with subject matter expertise on that area we like to be able to engage with you, our live online audience that are joining us from around the world and help give you a voice that can also be heard around the world. So with that, normally I like to open up the show talking about some of our cyber clusters of the week and just kind of backpedaling into what some of the major cybersecurity incidents have occurred in the week prior to us going live. However, since that is essentially the essence of today's entire episode, I'm going to skip that and just talk to the platform that we're joining you from, which is zoom.us. Now, I'm not going to go through the normal rhetoric, but let's just say that Zoom might need to start turning a closer ear towards the cybersecurity and infosec community and not lash out against security researchers that are bringing vulnerabilities to the table in your platform and making recommendations on a more secured approach. When we talk about cyber incidents that occur, and, and Troy, this is one of the things that I do want to talk with you about. One of the key things that we need to focus on is our incident handling. As a cybersecurity consultant for the past you know, 20 years of my career, one of the things that I always hear these organizations raise their hand and talk about about is that they need to have a vulnerability management program and there's a pretty you know, well-structured approach that you can take to that to be able to help protect yourselves against being exploited with these known vulnerabilities but what I don't often hear organizations raise their hand and ask about is what is our incident response plan should our vulnerability management program fail us Part of that is your communications plan and how you're going to communicate, who should be communicating, and what that message should be. Zoom, you got some work to do, folks. How you handled last week's vulnerability in the Mac client for your platform was grossly inappropriate, to say the least. So. If you want to take that offline with me, Zoom, I welcome that dialogue. I'd really appreciate having that conversation with you. But you damn near lost one of your customers as a result of that. And I suspect you have lost other customers as a result. So that's my opening monologue. Let me go ahead and get into introducing this week's special guest co-host, someone who Actually, out of the all the episodes that we've done thus far in season one of this podcast series, I don't actually need to have notes in front of me to be able to give you this guy's background and biography. Uh, Troy Hunt is just a, an awesome icon in our industry. He took something that seemed so simple and just made it such a profound impact on our industry and information and data protection at large. So Troy Hunt, um, a, a well-versed information security expert, 
based out of, well, whatever hotel room and country he decides to be in. I'm not even sure where he's at this week, but I'm sure he's going to fill us in here a bit. But he is an Australian, um, you know, like myself, multi-year award winner from Microsoft. He is a Microsoft Most Valuable Professional, as well as a regional director with Microsoft, which is another distinguished uh, award given by them and we're going to talk about some of those things as well but what he is really known for what has elevated his uh, position in infosec and cybersecurity, is he is the founder of the haveibeenpwned.com website and that is going to be really the basis of our discussion today is uh, the cyber, uh, or not even cyber, but data breach incidents that occur on almost a daily, if not every week basis, and how you are able to use Troy's service to be able to help protect yourself as an individual, or perhaps even your organizations out there. So without further ado, let me turn it over to Mr. Troy Hunt, have I been pwned up? Tom. Troy, thank you for coming on to the show. Thanks, Duncan. It's just nice I made your life easy for the intro. <laughs> That's just up to a good start. <laughs> so where are you joining us from this week? Uh, this, this week is Norway, so I'm, I'm still in Oslo. We we are recording this on uh, well, what day is it? Wednesday. <laughs> Wednesday 17. Just comes a blur. Wednesday 17 July, uh, and I'm yeah. So I'm, I'm here in Oslo at the moment. I'm heading off to uh, San Fran on Saturday, and then on to Vegas, and then on to many other things over the next few months as well. So uh, yeah, at, at the moment it's Oslo. It's it's it, they they tell me it's summer. There's some sun <laughs> it's not too bad today it's, it's not summer as i know or i don't think it's summer as you know it over there either but it's uh yeah it's, it's nice yeah i'm suspecting oslo is not getting the temperatures that we're getting here in central texas so if, if they want no. to know what summer's like i encourage those uh, norwegians to just bring themselves over the states come down to texas and we'll do some yeah. real barbecue for them but you know, so, you know having um, said that, there, there is a barbecue restaurant here, which honestly is the best I've ever been to. And I've been to a lot of them in Texas as well. There is an amazing, amazing American barbecue restaurant in Oslo. So uh, fun fact for viewers who maybe did not know that yet. Uh, it's called Way Down South, just in case anyone's over this way. Okay. If I ever make my way to Oslo, I will definitely have to check, check it out. out and see where it compares on the Austin, Houston, San Antonio, Hill Country barbecue here in Texas. So, <laughs> so you know, Troy, first, let me get back up into your bio. So I did talk about you being a Microsoft MVP and a Microsoft mm -hmm. Regional Director. You're also, you know, a, a brilliant Pluralsight content developer, educator, whatever you want to use as that term, instructor. Um, but but talk about some of that part of your background. Uh, what's your MVP award category? What is the difference between an MVP and a Microsoft Regional Director? And then maybe if you want to talk about some of the courses that you have on Pluralsight that some of the folks might be able to get into. Yeah, sure. Okay, so maybe the easy bits first, the MVP bit. Um, and, and I guess just for a, a sense of brief history, I started blogging. I'll have to check, actually. It must be almost exactly 10 years ago. And I, I started a blog because I thought having an online presence would be a smart career move. In fact, that was the, the title of the first blog post, Why Online Identities Are Called Smart Career Moves. Um, and just in case anyone's interested in like, in like the longer version of all this, there's a recorded talk I have uh, called Hack Your Career. So if you Google Troy Hunt Hack Your Career, you can sort of see the whole transition. But I started uh, down this path in 2009, started writing, uh, I mean, my background is a, as a developer, uh, developer and, and architect. For those not watching the video, I'm doing air quotes around architect. Uh, so I was those things. And then I started focusing a lot on InfoSec very shortly after I started blogging because I just saw so many misunderstandings around me and so little material for software developers to learn about security. There's a lot of material from security people, but that's often speaking a very different language. Started writing a lot, got the first MVP award in 2011 for developer security. Uh, the developer security is not an MVP category anymore. So now I'm rolled into Visual Studio and Tools, which 
which is fine. It's just like a bucket. I don't really mind what the bucket says, so long as I get access to MSDN and and of course all the people exactly. at, at Microsoft. So so I've had that since 2011. I just got renewed a couple of weeks ago, which was very nice. And then for the last three years, just to make things even more confusing, uh, I've been a Microsoft Regional Director as well. And I, I sort of summarise it to people and say, you know, that basically a Microsoft Regional Director means I don't have a region, I don't direct anything, and I don't get paid. Uh, which, which, of course, leaves the question of what's left after that. And I, I, I think probably the easiest way of explaining it is, is as an MVP, you get awarded for a technology discipline because you've shown some degree of prowess in whether it be developer security or Xbox or Excel or whatever other awards I still have today. Uh, and you're very community centric, but you're focused on the technology. And there are several thousand MVPs around the world. Uh, RDs are not aligned to an individual technology stack. They tend to be more uh, broad reaching, more strategic. Uh, it's very often people that, that have greater degrees of influence in companies or governments or whatever else it may be. And there are a hundred and something uh, RDs around the world. So very similar in other ways, good access to people in Microsoft, good access to, to product groups, go to Summit once a year, give feedback, get feedback, <laughs> that sort of thing. Uh, and look, it, it is a nice title as well. It is a title that does open some doors. And then once you're through the door, you have to explain that it's not what they thought it was, but you still get through the door. <laughs> like that's the good thing. Right. So you also develop content for Pluralsight, right? Yeah, so Pluralsight was, was really big for me from probably about late 2012, I did my first course. Uh, in fact, the first course I ever did was at the ASP, or actually it was the OWASP Top 10, Trace Pedal Net Developers. And still to this day, it's my number one rated course by a long way, number one most viewed course by a long way. So I, I did that, and then I did a, a, another 40-something courses <laughs> after that. So I invested a lot of time in that. Uh, and I talk about that in the, in the Hacker Career video too. And Pluralsight was, was great. It gave me an opportunity to get out there and, and expand my reach and also start to make some money out of it and eventually make quite a lot of money out of it. Uh, and, and that's been fantastic. I've done less in more recent years as there's been other things that I've been focused on, including the likes that have been pwned. But I still speak to those guys a lot, still do quite a few events. I was with them in New York, uh, I want to say only a few weeks ago, but I think it was about two months ago and I've just lost track of time. <laughs> Not too long ago in New York. So I still got a great relationship with those guys, uh, but I'm doing less sort of sitting down there and recording very, very lengthy courses and then staying up all hours editing them. I just stay up all hours and do different things now. Yeah, it seems like it's so beyond those auxiliary items and the Have I Been Pwned, which we're going to get into, you're also doing some global trainings and presentations at industry conferences, right? Do you want to touch on any of that? Talk about what some of your upcoming schedules may be where folks might be able to connect with you in, in person or hear some of your talks around the world? Yeah, so let me see. Uh, so chronologically, uh, well, actually, you know, I've not told anyone this yet publicly, but I'm going to be uh, at Black Hat DEF CON in Vegas in one or two and a half weeks' time. So uh, I'll be there. And, you know, the really funny thing about it is this is the first time in a very, very long time I've gone to a conference without any real commitments. There's one or two little things I've got to do, but, but that's it. So I'm going there without having to prepare a talk or do anything like that. I'm not doing any training. I'm just literally going to go there and, and go to the event. I, I actually bought... Uh, a, a ticket to DEFCON the other day. I think it's the first time I've paid, <laughs> I've paid for a ticket to an event. It was only a few hundred bucks, but you know, the first time I've paid for a ticket in a very long time. And I was just like, oh man, screw this. I just want to go watch and not have responsibilities. So uh, I'll be there. So I people, can totally you know, relate. <laughs> if people want to catch up in Vegas, you know, let, let me know. I, having looked at the forecast as well, I do intend to spend a bunch of time in the hotel pool just trying to recover because I've got an absolutely crazy couple of weeks coming up. So I'll be there. I will be, uh, where else will I be? I've, I've, I've got a couple of events I need to announce yet. So one of them is uh, going to be, uh, I'm not sure if I can say where this one is. There's going to be one in Scandinavia in September. There's also going to be one in, in Hungary uh, in September. And I'm going to be around Switzerland a little bit just after that as well. And the other one, which is definitely very public and I'm, I'm known for, is, is NDC in Sydney. So I'll be at NDC in Sydney. I think it's about the 14th of October. 
Uh, and I will be doing a two-day workshop there as well as a talk. Ah, nice. I wish I could make it down for that. I'd love to be able to see the country. So not okay, bad. So... One, one, hop, one hop from Dallas. You can, you can do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just a hell of a hop, though. So I, I, I kind of like to do something with our guests before we get into the meat of what we're really here to talk about. And that's just to be able to help our audience connect with our guests a little bit deeper, get to know them a little bit better. I like to ask the one question. What is it about Troy Hunt, some little factoid or little nugget about you that they might not be able to otherwise find out on their own? Tell us something about yourself. So you, you gave me a heads up about this about an hour ago and I, I had a bit of a think about it and I was, I was wondering if should there be something about, you know, my personal life which is deep and insightful or something like that. And I, I realised well, one of the things many people probably don't know but I'm sure it resonates with a lot of people uh, is, is I actually dropped out of university to, to go and actually do what I... I guess the precursor to what I do today. So I went to university... Um, uh, let's just say some years ago now, <laughs> around the beginning <laughs> of the World Wide Web as we know it, mid, mid-90s. Mm -hmm. And uh, when, when I started at university, uh, that was the first time I saw the web. So this was in 1995. People look at my LinkedIn profile and figure it out anyway. So I, I started there and I saw the web and I was like, this is amazing. I've, I've got to do this. I've got to get on this thing. I've got to build some stuff. I'm at university. I'll just go and do a... a a subject on web development and I'll learn and, and you can't or well, you couldn't back then there was nothing on web development and uh, as I progressed I was doing stuff like COBOL and database design and all this other kind of I had to do chemistry Ooh. and discrete mathematics and things I just hated um, so instead I, I went and bought HTML for dummies and I literally still have the HTML for dummies book on my bookshelf back home and I remember I was, I was traveling to my grandparents at the time I bought it. I'm just sitting on the bus reading the book, learning HTML. And then as, as I progressed through the years at university, I was, I was starting to, to actually get work doing web development. And I, I started working with some people where I was actually starting to make a lot of money as well. And I was like, wow, this, this is amazing. Why do I need the university? And I got to about 80% of the degree complete. And I eventually just went, ah, screw this. So, yeah, we're dot-com times then as well. So uh, I dropped out. And... Never, ever once looked back <laughs> at all. And, and this is, by the way, this is not necessarily career advice. It's not like saying to people, if you're in university, drop out now and go and do something else because I think there's still a really good role for university to play. But that is something that a lot of people probably didn't know about me. Uh, and, and fun fact on that as well, like oh, it must have been about 15 years ago I got in touch with the university and I've been working professionally for years by then. I went, oh, you know, what will it take to actually just just finish it off, you know, it can't be too hard for me now working professionally. And they're like, oh, all your credits have expired. You've got to start the whole thing again. Nope, see you later. <laughs> That's it, not doing that. <laughs> right. So, uh, yeah, I can definitely relate. I'm, I'm kind of like you. I started my career very early. Uh, it, you know, I got into this gig. Actually, strangely enough, operating as a BBS sysop, if you yeah. remember the term. And I was yeah. working in law enforcement and ended up getting asked by our special victims unit if I knew how to write a web page. They didn't call it a web page. Do you know how to make one of those pages for the World Wide Web? Is how they asked it. And, you know, it just kind of spawned from right there. And I was already married and already had two children at that time. And yeah. the whole university thing just wasn't in my wheelhouse. It, life happened for me a lot faster and a lot differently than it does for most folks. But I can't relate to you because I did eventually take a couple college courses. One was Intro to Programming Logic and Design. And another one was DOS uh, 3. something. Uh, I don't remember which version at this point. I'm getting too old, and that part of my brain is starting <laughs> to purge stuff. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, that's kind of what set up my career. But like you, having that principal foundation with a very, very good course, programming logic and design, 
the fundamentals that I learned in that one course have carried me through my entire career because every role I've ever had, there's been some part of that that has played into it. Kind of like you, starting early with app dev and then app sec, uh, that kind of was the precursor for what you're actually famous around the world for now. And this is the haveibeenpwned.com website. So mm. for those that are joining that may not be familiar, let's have your elevator pitch. What is the website service all about? So Have I Been Pwned is, in, in simple terms, it's a data breach aggregation service. Data breaches happen. I grab them. I put them on Have I Been Pwned, and I make it possible for people to search and see, like quite literally, if they have been pwned in, in a data breach. Uh, a, a couple of days ago, I passed through the 8 billion record mark. So there's now more than 8 billion records in there. Uh, about 17 of them mine, too. Thank you very much, because I've been in a bunch of data breaches. And then what happens over time is there's, there's more and more data breaches. They go into, have I been pwned? People get alerts. The computer sitting right there at the moment is sending about another 40,000 emails for the, for the latest data breach that had 40-something million people in it. So you can subscribe. Uh, it's all free. You just leave your email address. And then if I see you in a data breach, you get, a, you get an email later on to say you've been pwned. And that was kind of the, the basics of it. That started in late 2013, December 2013. And then over time, it kind of expanded. So uh, there's a domain search feature. So organizations can say, hey, just like show me everything on my domain that's been pwned. There's an API. There's some commercial subscribers that pay money to get access to larger volumes of data for their customers and their employees and things like this. Uh, and, and eventually, it's actually at the point now where the, and I'm sure some people watching this know what's what's happening with it, but it's it's gotten so big that I'm having to find a new home for it. So one of the reasons I'm sort of living out of a suitcase at the moment is we're literally traveling around the world, speaking with organizations and finding where is going to be the new home to have a long time. Yeah, those growing pains. Uh, I've I watched a couple really good websites like you were talking earlier, especially going through the dot-com boom and everything that took place. You know, internet.com was just buying up, you know, website properties left and right. And one of them, uh, you know, I hated to see it happen because it ultimately led to the demise. And, I, and I'm praying that the result of your travels and these pitch talks and everything else, you know, ultimately I, I'm praying for the best for mm. Have I Been Pwned's future. I, and I mean that with complete sincerity. But because of the background of what I've seen happen to similar kind of sites in the past, you know, I'm also very uh, leery of what the outcome could be. And I think the industry at large, you know, once you made that announcement about kind of taking a step back from all this and, and having to rethink the future of Have I Been Pwned and knowing that it, it, it's got to go beyond just yourself, that a lot of us have legitimate concerns about its future and what's going to happen, what will the direction be for it. Uh, you know, my natural curiosity, the, the one thing that I've always wondered is, what is the risk of having all this rich metadata about all these cyber breaches that have occurred around the world over the past many years for all that metadata to exist side by side in one single website. Uh, are you so damn good, Troy, that it's beyond reproach? I mean, is the security so Fort Knox that you can't be hacked? Is that a concern to you? Do you, you know, live with that <laughs> threat? I'm not stupid enough to say, no, I can't be hacked or it's, it's impenetrable. Because every time someone does that, they suddenly get a bunch of very free penetration tests. And I, <laughs> you know, I, don't, I don't really want to go through that process. So it's, it, we've got to kind of bucket things into, into a couple of different categories. And the, the first thing is, in, in terms of stuff that goes into the cloud, that you know, it sits up there in, in Azure, it's, it's email addresses alone. So it's email, you know, 8 billion something records of email address and an association to a data breach. There are passwords in another part of the service, but they're disassociated from email addresses. And, and they're all downloadable. Right. 555 they don't sit side by side. Correct. So, you know, if, if we sort of did the whole risk assessment kind of thing on this and said, oh, what if, what if have I been pwned gets pwned in the worst possible way, if everything that's up on that cloud service gets taken, you know, 
all right, obviously I do not want that to happen, but for the most part, we're talking about email addresses only from data breaches that in the most part were already out there circulating publicly. We've just now got an aggregated source. Now, of course, there's more than that because there's things like the 2.8 million subscribers who use the service, their email addresses are with me, but again, it's just email addresses. There's, there's nothing else that's there. So the, the, the limit of the risk there is, it, it's, it's not big in the scheme of things. Now, the data breaches themselves, I do still maintain, they all sit offline on a network uh, attached storage device, which is literally bolted to a floor, full disk encryption, all the rest of it. Of course, that's possible if something could go wrong with that. The likelihood of it happening is exceptionally low, and there's a whole bunch of mitigations that are put around that to ensure that if something does happen, it's not as bad as it could be. But, you know, part of all this also is, is that you know, one of the reasons I wanted to go down this this sale process is that I want to get it under a more formal structure. I want it to be more than just like one bloke going, yeah, I'm doing my best <laughs> kind of thing. You know, I want it to be uh, a much more <laughs> right. well-resourced organisation who we can have a lot more confidence in. Because as much as I travel around and talk about the cyber things, you know, I'm not immune from screwing stuff up. It's, it's certainly possible. And, and frankly, I'm going to sleep a lot better when it's not just all on my shoulders. Well, and... You do need sleep. You need rest. You need to be able to have a personal <laughs> life beyond. Yeah. Amen to that, brother. And, you know, how can you really do that and have a complete disconnect when essentially the world is depending on you? You know, they have these subscriptions. They have these alert notifications. And they're depending on this service to be able to alert them immediately should we have another, you know, cyber incident. You know, my hat's, you know, off to you for all these years of putting forth this work and all this effort and providing this service, you know, free of charge to individuals. Um, and not really asking much in return. You know, so thank you for that. But it has to have been taxing on you as a person and your own mental health. And I'm not saying you're, you're crazy, but your own <laughs> mental health and, and physical health, right? So, yeah, maybe it is time to take a little bit of a step back and, and bring in some additional resources and folks with a, you know, equal uh, expertise in this subject matter and be able to perhaps even make it stronger and better than it is today. So, you know, as much as I am a little bit leery of what the future may hold for, I'm also pretty optimistic as well. You know, so it, it's yeah. mixed emotions and I'm praying for the best for you. And I mean that with complete sincerity. You know, first of all, thanks. Uh, a lot of what you said is, is very true. I guess one thing that um, in terms of being leery about the outcome, you know, one thing to make clear to, to everyone at the moment is is I'm in full control of the process. So there's no duress. There's no, you know, like not being sued or anything like that. I'm, yeah, I, I don't have to get right. rid of it because of whatever other reasons you can think of. It's it's literally exactly what I want to do on my own terms. So there, there has been a, a huge amount of interest, as, as people can probably imagine, in, in the service. And it is a, a very formal process that we're going through at the moment. KPMG is running this mergers and acquisition process for me. Uh, the reason I'm going to San Fran next week is I got to sit down face to face with a whole bunch of companies and and literally talk about what have a vampire might look like with them. And there many companies that many people here are very familiar with. Obviously, can't say who they are, but eventually you'll hear who one of them is at least. So I get to choose, and my hope is that when I sit down there face to face with these organisations, I, I get to sort of say, you know, how are you going to help me fulfil that vision I have for have a vampire? You know, how are we going to take this thing together? make the world a better place, do better things. Now, I've also got to have enough confidence that they're going to fulfil on that promise too because I don't want to sort of get to a situation where I turn around, you know, later this year and someone goes, here's your bag of money, now we're going to do something crazy with it. I'm very, very conscious about that. And and part right. of, of the, the formality of this process is that we're really carefully looking at these organisations and going, look, how well equipped are they to actually deliver on the vision that we have? Uh, yeah, you, you touched on a couple of other things that were interesting too, and, and one of them was the the mental health side of things. And 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 honestly, like what about January this year? I was really starting to get close to burning out, uh, and I, I sort of sat there for a bit and and went, you know, am I am I burned out? No, I, I don't think I am, but I can see the point in the future if I don't make changes, I, I will be. 
And to the point earlier about this not being done under duress, I wanted to make those changes before I had to, and then I would be sort of pressed into a bit of a corner. So there was that. And then in terms of the, the physical health, paradoxically, I've, I feel the best I have for, for many years because particularly in, in Jan when the stress went right up, my, my diet started improving. Um, I mean, it was always good, but I just became a lot more focused on it. And my exercise levels increased a lot as well. I went out and when I got home from the trip I was on at the time, I just went, that's it, like I'm playing tennis with a coach for an hour in the middle of the day every single day, which is like temperatures at your place <laughs> at that time of year in general. Yeah, right. And I went, I'm, and I'm doing this because I want to just throw myself into something as hard as I possibly can and force me to focus on, on that and turn my mind off from everything else. So my, my tennis improved a lot. <laughs> I have my fitness levels improved and I'm, I'm running a lot more now and, and still playing a lot more tennis and just trying to focus on, on my physical health and that, that seems to have been helping the mental side of things as well. That's glad, good to hear, and I'm glad for that. Um, so you mentioned something I got to ask you, man. You talked about the reverse seasons, of course, being south of the equator and all that. You know, I, I have to ask the question: Is it true that the toilets flush in the opposite direction in Australia? Or do you just put that stuff out there to mess with us Americans? How much time do you really think I spend looking in the toilet? <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know. That's, maybe I should try that when I go home. If, if you're listening from Australia at, what is it, 2 o'clock in the morning, give that a run. Let us know. Yeah. Right in. Yeah, put it in but the chat window. You, you've been watching too much Simpsons, mate. <laughs> there you go. Or, or friends, whatever the case may be. Okay, so back to Have I Been Pwn. Um, let's talk about the business elements of it. So for those that are listening in that may be part of a small to medium-sized business, uh, Troy, what can they do to help protect the organizations without having to run around and have 50 people independently subscribe to the service? Yeah, so domain search is the obvious one there. Uh, now, now, funnily enough, I do get a bunch of emails from people saying, hey, I would like to be able to search across my whole domain. How do I do it? And then I say, you go to the website and you click on the link that says domain search up the top of the page. So I don't know what it is, but it, it, it is alarmingly common that people don't realize that that's there. There is a link. It says domain search. Click it. You verify that you can control the domain. So you can uh, either upload a file to the site, you can add a meta tag, uh, there's a TXT entry option for DNS, or you can get an email to one of several standard email addresses. Uh, you do that, demonstrates you're in control, you get to run a search, and then say, you know, I, I do this for troyhunt.com. I can now see every single email address on troyhunt.com that's been a data breach, and subscribe so I get notifications as well. Uh, and that's all just freely accessible. So you can go and do that. That's an easy one. The other thing is if you're running any sort of site that involves authentication, there's the Pwn password service. And the Pwn password service is 555 million passwords. I released a version five just earlier this week. 550 million passwords from previous data breaches. You can then use those to try and guide your users down a path of better password choice. Uh, so for example, uh, GitHub mm. uses it. So if, if you go and log yourself into GitHub, and you're using a password from Cone Passwords, they'll say, hey, look, this is a password that's previously been in a data breach. It's at higher risk. Have I been pwned or seen it before? You probably want to choose a different one. So that's, now, uh, that's uh, another good one. Can I, can I interrupt there and ask a question just to elaborate? So again, back to something you said earlier on, these passwords are not sitting in parallel to usernames or, or email addresses. These are just right. a bulk you know, dump of all these passwords that have existed in some other breach. So it may be that you have a false I don't want to say false. It may be that there's a report that that password has been used in a prior breach, but it doesn't mean that yeah. it is your information, your email address, and your password. It's just that that password itself has at some point been used by some individual that has been compromised as part of a data breach. Is that correct? Yeah, that, that's right. But let, let, let's play that, that train of thought through because I think what you're starting to think there is it doesn't necessarily mean that someone's reusing their password. You know, it might have been someone else's password, so, you know, should we block it? So, let, yeah, first of all, 
if if it's a genuinely strong password, uh, now whether you're generating one out of a password manager or whether you're generating a passphrase, uh, if it's genuinely strong, the chances of it ever having appeared anywhere else are exceptionally low. Now, what causes a password to be one that just coincidentally is the same as someone else used? You've both got dogs of the same name, or you went to the same university, or you've called your kids the same name, or something like that. They're factors which generally lead generally generally lead to bad password choices in the first place so you having the same password as someone else in the data breach is almost certainly an indicator that's a bad password of course the other option is it's a good password but it has already appeared in another data breach because you're using the same one everywhere in which case it's also a bad password and you shouldn't be using that now in, in fairness there, there is a usability impact here and people do need to consider where the threshold is so pwn passwords does have a prevalence count for each and every password. So not only do you get to see if the password's been pwned before or not, you get to see how many times. So what, what I suggest to people who are a bit worried about the usability impact is, is pick your threshold. So if a password's been seen once before on a data breach, does that mean no one can ever use it? Well, yeah, maybe not. All right, what if it's been seen a thousand times? You know, like if it's been seen a thousand times, are you really sure you want someone using that password? Right. All right, maybe not. What if it's 50,000 times? Like, find your threshold because there is a point where regardless of how many uppercases and lowercases and characters and things it's got, it's just a crap password. And you, the, the likelihood of an account takeover successfully happening and then impacting not just the individual but impacting you as a business because you're the one that's got to wear the cost of helping people recover from account takeovers, <coughs> the likelihood of that happening just starts to go up and up and up and up. So find your threshold there somewhere. And it's not always binary either. It's not like you're just not allowed to use this password. You might say, look, uh, seen more than a thousand times, you can't use it. Seen between a hundred and a thousand times, we're just going to give a little bit of guidance. You know, this is a password which has appeared in many data breaches before. Perhaps you'd like to choose a different one. Less than a hundred times, maybe just silently flag the record. And then if you do have any account takeover issues later on and the record's been flagged to say this, this password has been somewhere, seen between somewhere of uh, you know zero and a hundred times or one and a hundred times, uh, maybe this was the cause of it. So there's lots of ways of using the data which aren't necessarily like boil the ocean, just kill all the things straight away. So this seems very compelling to me and something that would obviously be of great benefit to, let's just say that mid-market to lower enterprise space, uh, those kinds of companies and organizations, how can they take advantage of this password API or is it really just intended to be OEM to the likes of password managers and, and uh, you know the higher end websites out there? Well, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of different things they can do. So, uh, you know, certainly it, it is more relevant to organisations that are controlling the authentication flow. So yeah, everything from uh, registration to password reset to, to login are the three places you'd normally see that used. So that, that's a good point. Um, you know, the, the other thing you can do is you can always download these passwords as NTLM hashes and compare them to your, your internal Active Directory instance straight away. So you can be yeah. a small to medium organisation and do that. Uh, in the blog post I put out a few days ago about the launch of password passwords v5, I also linked to a, a really great uh, piece of open source work to to take those hashes and compare them to your NTLM instance. So you know, you use this as an introspective tool as well. Uh, plus, yeah, pretty much every organisation of every size has got some degree of cybersecurity training. You just tell people to go and give it a go. And now, now there's a whole other discussion here about should you ask them to enter their password into that service. There is an anonymity model, but you have to trust the site to serve up the anonymity model and not be all sorts of other discussions there. But there are loads of ways of actually checking passwords and seeing if, if they're being used or not without impacting uh, privacy as well. So you've mentioned your blog a, a few times. Is that at troyhunt.com or is that off of the yep. haveibeenpwned.com site? Troyhunt.com. Troyhunt.com. So just for reference, for those of you that are listening, that last mention about being able to consume those password hashes and running that against your own LT NTLM um, authentication process, that, that's pretty interesting. I think I'm going to have to kick that one around a bit myself. So, Troy, uh, we're coming up about that 45-minute mark. I'm going to want to leave some time here for 
for Q&As, but we've been talking all about authentication and these pwned accounts through data breaches and, and all these password hashes that are sitting there in your service. Based off of my conversation last week with Ann Johnson, who is the Corporate Vice President of Cybersecurity with Microsoft, she was our guest co-host last week. Microsoft has this massive initiative around going passwordless, right? Just completely doing away with passwords altogether, having multi-factor authentication with you know biometrics or hardware-based token keys and all these kinds of things. Mm. What's your position on being able to go passwordless today, right now? If an organization wanted to do it, do you think it's a realistic possibility as things sit today? No. <laughs> Any other questions? Uh, no, look, I, I, I don't. <laughs> no. And the, I, I think we're, we're really positioning it the wrong way. Uh, so, yeah, let, let's think about things like biometric devices. I'm using my iPhone X at the moment, <laughs> which I've just realised I can't charge at the same Well, I knew this already, but I can't charge it at the same time as using the cable I just had to plug in because the AirPods drained. So th this will be interesting. We'll see if I'm just going to be rotating between the things that have enough battery in the moment. Uh, but when I got the iPhone <laughs> X, and it had the promise of biometrics and face ID. It's like, oh, fantastic face ID. It's like you don't need to use a password. You just face ID your way in. And I took the phone out of the box, and it's like, what's the Wi-Fi password? So, ah, oh, crap, all right, there's a password, number one. And then it's like, what's your iCloud password so we can restore you? Well, there's number two. And then it said, let's set up face ID. What password do you want as a fallback position when face ID doesn't work or when you <laughs> literally have to sort of hard reboot the device? And I guess the, the point I'm making here is that you're three passwords in just to use the device, which is now meant to be passwordless for general usage. However, and, and this is true of things like uh, Windows Hello and, and the, the ability to do Face ID, not Face ID, that would be the Apple thing, but facial recognition for auth, uh, biometrics, which I've got on things like my laptops here. They're fantastic, but they don't get rid of passwords. But what they do is they change the prevalence with which we need to use them. I think it's fantastic that I can log off. I've literally got all my devices here. I've got my iPhone, my iPad, one laptop, two laptops. So two face IDs here, two biometric fingerprint readers in the Lenovo's. So I can authenticate to any of these devices faster than I can type the password. I can authenticate in front of other people and not disclose the secret. I can get into these devices much faster and easier. So I've got more aggressive lockout time on them. Uh, all of them will fall back to password if the biometric doesn't work. The password is still there. So I, I guess the, the point here is that all of this stuff is leading us in the right direction, but it is not getting rid of passwords. It's augmenting them in ways that reduce our dependency on them. Now, in the longer term, will we just use U2F everywhere? Will we biometrics everywhere? Well, there's, there's issues with both of those things. Um, maybe, I don't know, but I bet you five years from now, you'll have more passwords than what you have today. That brings us to password managers, right? So I, I know you're very keen on password managers and you have relationships. I think it's with one password, right? Yeah. Uh, that's work, working with you in tandem to, of consuming the data that's on haveibeenpwned.com. Obviously, they're, they're a favorite. Um, is there a particular... Uh, feature or functionality that you think rises one password manager up above the stack versus the others? What should folks be looking for when they look at the slew of options that exist today for password management? Yeah, the, the killer feature is they integrate with Have I Been Pwned. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> now, to, to, to be fair, if we do, do a little bit of history recap here, I started using a password manager in 2011. I sort of had the epiphany of, you know, isn't this crazy? Like strong passwords are passwords which are complex. Unique passwords are strong passwords used over and over and over again, but they've got to be different every single time. My feeble brain can't deal with this. And unless you're Rain Man, yours can't either. So how are we going to deal with this? Well, we've got to have a password manager. And I wrote a blog post at the time called The Only Secure Password is the One You Can't Remember. And, you know, this was just one of these things where I thought, oh, this is like a, a good blog post at the time that sort of became one of the kind of canonical references uh, used over and over and over again. And I went through and looked at a bunch of password managers at the time and I decided that one password was the best thing to work across my iOS devices and my PCs and all the things that I needed on a day-by-day -day basis. 
Uh, I found the usability of it was good, the integration, the synchronization between devices, I liked it all. So I started down that path. Now, fast forward then what would have been about seven years later, I got to earlier last year, and I wanted to, to work with an organisation that did password managers and sort of build it more into the guidance and have I been pwned because have I been pwned is used by a huge number of, of mere mortal consumers, you know, not tech people like most of us in this podcast. Um, it, it's very, very often in mainstream media. If I go back to January, that, that time where everything just escalated so much, uh, I had about 10 million people on one day come to the site. Now, that's not 10 million technical people. It's, you know, it's probably 9.9 .9 million everyday consumers and, and then a small fraction of people that actually understand the technology things. So I wanted to sort of get away from saying, uh, hey, you've been pwned. Go and create strong, unique passwords. Good luck. <laughs> you know, I wanted to say this is the tool that I use and the one that I trust yeah. and this is what I think is the best option. So one password as a product now sits in there. Uh, and, of course, that's been really great for them as well because this is a point where someone has just gone, oh, crap, I've just realised I've got every password everywhere is the same. One of them's been in the data breach. I've now got to go and change them all. Uh, what am I going to do? Here's the password manager. So I really wanted to give people the solution. Uh, and before anyone jumps up and says, well, you could have said that there are many good password managers out there and you can choose one. It, well, now we're in the paradox of choice where if you don't say to people, look, let me take you by the hand, do this, go there, set this thing up. It's very hard for people to then make decisions. And being one password and being an organization I had this affinity with already, that was just an easy decision. And I totally get that. Authoring the book that I am right now, Hackers and How to Stop Them, obviously password managers is a chapter in the book and having to go through and evaluate each of those password managers, the top tier ones at least. Uh, there's loads of variants between them and, and things that resonated well with me in one that didn't quite work in another. So I can appreciate you taking one and just sticking with it and saying, okay, this is where I'm going to focus. That way I can walk folks step by step by step through the whole process because getting those password managers set up, especially across mobile devices and multiple laptops, desktops, etc., not exactly the easiest thing. So if you do have those kinds of guides available for the average consumer like you're talking about, it makes it much easier for them. So thank you for that. Okay, so we are uh, getting towards the end of the show. I'd like to go ahead at this point. If you don't mind, Troy, let's uh, take a few questions from our chat panel, if that's okay. Let's do it. Absolutely. Okay, so Carol, I'm going to go ahead and mute myself, let you take over and address the Q&A queue. Okay, so we do have several questions today. Can everybody hear me okay? Um, Troy, I just want to stop and take the time to say thank you very much for coming on. Um, this has just been a long time coming, and I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. A, a threefold question, you know, is there any news about the project? And you've kind of answered that already. You're going to San Fran next week. You'll be meeting with several people. So that's been asked. One is, what do you see for the future of Have I Been Pwned? Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, I guess, first of all, I've always run it very transparently. Everything from how I get the data to how I built the thing. There's, there's a lot of blog posts up there just about the mechanics of how I built the service on, on Azure. And one of the things I really, really want to be as transparent about as I can is, is this process, this mergers and acquisition process. Uh, and I'm sort of sharing as much as I can right now. I, I hope that when I'm through this, I'll be able to go, look, here's a, a a behind the curtain sort of reveal of a lot of the stuff that I had to go through to, to do this process. It's a little bit tricky at the moment because we're speaking to all of these companies about a you know, pretty serious acquisition. So there's, a, there's only kind of so much that I can, I can probably get away with saying before I get myself in trouble from KPMG guys. Um, but yeah, you know, what, what I can say is uh, I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'll be off to San Fran on, on the weekend uh, next week and the week after I'll be meeting with a bunch of organizations there was a huge amount of interest and we, we sort of started with a, if you can imagine, it was like a funnel. We started with all these companies we were speaking to and over time, we've just sort of been able to chip away at them. You know, look, this organisation we don't think is a good sort of philosophical or an ethical fit. Uh, this organisation just simply doesn't have the resources to be able to run it uh, in the fashion that I'd really like to. And, and that kind of leads to the next part of the question, which was about the future of it. 
I want to build out a lot more stuff. Uh, and as a, for example, a, a good, good sort of situation here is I'm processing just ridiculous amounts of data at the moment to try and get data breaches loaded into Havoc and Pwn. If you've been watching the last few days, you would have seen there's quite a number of them that are in the tens of millions or one that was even over 100 million uh, records. They're not so much trouble because they're known incidents which are in the press. Uh, they're still taking me on average probably one to two hours for every single one of those, but they're known incidents in the press. There's a huge amount of data that's sitting there which is not disclosed. Uh, these are data breaches where the organisation probably doesn't know about a lot of them. The individuals in them don't know about it. I'm probably in some of those, for all I know. And I want that data processed. Like, I want warm bodies that can just sit there and go through and process the data. I want processes where we can do disclosure better. Now, this is where I need more legal support, for example. I want to be able to have a situation where it's like, look, I've got someone's data. They're not replying. Right. What do we do? You know, I don't feel good just sitting on it, having it sort of sit there on a hard disk going, well, they don't reply. Uh, I'm a little bit nervous about loading it because I don't know if they'll get really upset or if there's legally, you know, yeah. There's got to be some form of structure where we can get more of this done. So I want to do that. Uh, I want to do a lot more around providing the right sort of data from these breaches to the right sorts of people. Uh, I'll give you an example of that. I hear all the time people say, can you tell me the password which was, in, uh, which was involved in this breach? Now, I don't want to sit on passwords up there in the cloud. I don't want to sit on partial passwords up there in the cloud and only show the first two characters and a bunch of stars. That's just way too, way, way too much risk. I think there are ways of doing this well, and this is the sort of thing that requires engineering effort and it requires, again, things like legal support in order to be able to make sure that you don't get your ass handed to you if something goes wrong. So, so all of this sort of stuff are the kinds of things that I want to do in the future, as well as a bunch of other things that have been popping up particularly as I have discussions with the sorts of organisations that are looking at how they impair now. So I have massive ideas that are going to take a lot of resources in order to sort of fulfil the entire vision. I really hope you land this with an organisation that has the same spirit and aptitude and respect that you have for this. Uh, I really do. That's what I'm hoping for you and it's what I'm hoping for the, the service and for the community at large. Are you a proponent of security.txt for these kinds of breach notifications? You know, it seems like you run into this situation quite frequently where you're being alerted by whatever security researcher or, or process methodology of potential data breach then you go try to find out who to notify within the organization that's been breached and end up having a resort to reaching out to Twitterverse and saying, hey, yeah. anybody got a contact within X, Y, or Z? Because I'm not getting anywhere. Don't you think security.txt might help with that? Yep, love it. So security.txt is awesome. And if, for anyone out there who hasn't seen it before, just do a Google search for security.txt. It, yeah. What I love about it is, is it is, it's a text file you put in dot well dash known the directory of, of your uh, of the Rudy website. So you go forward slash dot well dash known forward slash security dot txt. You can go and have a look at that at troyhump.com or have I been pwned.com. There's a couple of lines in there, and the lines are literally like, uh, here's how to get in touch with me. You know, mm -hmm. here is here is where to go if you want to submit a vulnerability report or something. For large organisations, organisations like Dropbox or the BBC, they also have security TXTs. They'll publish a public key. I, I publish a link to my Keybase account if you want to encrypt your, your things that you send to me. They will include possibly uh, job information as well. Some of them have this. And mm -hmm. it, it's just so, so simple. So there's a guy on Twitter called Ed Overflow uh, who's come up with this spec. He's a, he's a bloke in Switzerland, actually. And he's sort of been silently, silently, but you know, gradually pushing away at this, trying to get it traction. Um, and it is getting some really good traction with the world's largest uh, companies. So Scott Helm runs a service which every night crawls the Alexa Top 1 million, looks for a bunch of security things. And one of the things he looks for is a security.txt file. So if you go to crawler.ninja, I don't know why Scott chose Ninja TLD. Maybe it sounds cool. Doesn't matter. Anyway, go to crawler.ninja and he's literally got the crawl data there so you can see which of the world's top 1 million websites are broadcasting security.txt file. Oh, cool. I did not know that part. That, that's, 
Really cool. So uh, crawler.ninja. Going to have to check that one out. Okay, folks. Um, Carol, do we still have Q&A? All right. I'm going to turn it back over to Carol for one. So we've talked about what your plans of the future are, you know, what the process has been thus far. When you sit down and meet with these people, what are the types of questions or vetting are you going through? You know, are there particular questions mm. that you want answers to? You know, what is that whole process? Yeah, well, it's, it, it, it's really interesting. So, you know, uh, often this is sort of a discussion rather than a, a set of questions. And, and the discussion is sort of like, okay, you know, you're, you're Acme Core and you do these things. This is what Have I Been Pioneer does. How much stuff do we have in common in terms of the, the mechanics of what it's, what it's doing? Does this align to your product roadmap, you know, the way you want to build out your services? Um, what about your ethical view of data? I mean, all of you can probably think of companies where if I turn around tomorrow and went, this company bought Have I Been Pwned, everyone would go, oh, my God, what have you done? So I've got to try and figure out whether their sort of ethical approach to data aligns with mine. One of the, the really interesting things is, is some companies I would not have expected to reach out have and, and as we've had discussions it's like i would not have thought this was a good idea but now that i understand what you do with the data and, and the ability you you have to actually impact people that there, there are actually some ideas in there which i didn't have before so this could be good uh some of the questions and it's, it's quite interesting for me to see this this m a process and again this is the sort of stuff i hope i can talk more about later on but the questions are around things like how are you going to fund an acquisition like where is the money going to come from you know how are you going to make this stuff happen because that's also very interesting as well. Like, are these organisations actually properly equipped to be able to do this? Uh, some of them, the big tech companies, for example, it's like, well, this is money that we'd lose down the back of the couch and not even notice. Uh, other ones, when they're startups and they're VC funded, it's like, well, okay, well, am I possibly going into an organisation that, that may not actually have the resources to deliver on where I want to take this, this, this project in the future? So there's really interesting discussions on, on all levels. And I'm, I'm basically just spending my life at the moment having these chats. This is why my battery's always dead on my AirPods these days. Uh, having these chats and, and responding to emails and, of course, traveling around the world. Great. Thank you so much for that. Troy, we are at the top of the hour. I want to thank you once more for taking time out of your extremely hectic and busy schedule, traveling all over, having these meetings and doing all the things pleasure. that uh so thank you thank you thank you all right so folks we're going to wrap up the recording before we do though just a quick show note for next week you have one week ladies and gentlemen between now and next wednesday i would love for you to take 90 minutes out of your life watch the documentary film the creepy line once more, the creepy line. It is all about Facebook, Google, and the shady stuff that they do to interfere, upset, and distort our daily lives. The reason I'm asking for you to watch that particular documentary is next Wednesday, I will be joined by Mr. M.A. Taylor, the director of The Creepy Line. He will be live here on Cyberspeaks Live talking about data protection, data privacy, and what's been going on in recent years with these two Goliaths and using our data in their daily warfares. So be sure to watch that. You can find it on iTunes or Amazon Prime video. And uh, again, we'll have the director of the film on our show next week for you to be able to ask your questions, engage with them, etc. So with that, this has been another episode of Cyberspeaks Live. Again, I am Duncan Macklin. You can find me on Twitter at InfoSecWar. Troy, how can folks get in touch with you if they have other questions or want to take advantage of some of your businesses, services, etc.? cetera? Uh, so easy ones are TroyHunt.com. All the blog things are there. Have I been or on Twitter at TroyHunt? 
All right. Thank you very much. And ladies and gentlemen, with that, this has been another episode of Cyberspeaks Live, and we are out. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Cyberspeaks Live. Remember to visit our blog at cyberspeaks.com to sign up for our newsletter of upcoming episodes and special guest co-hosts. If you'd like to be a guest co-host or sponsor the show, please email us at speakup at cyberspeaks.com. That's all for this week. And as always, stay safe and secure out there.